Rabbi Stephen Warnock reflects on climate change. This sermon is called Never Too Late. Enjoy. The Eitzheim Chumash points out that the last 11 chapters above me bar, beginning with our Parsha this morning, are entirely focused on the process of entering Eretz Israel, on entering the land of Israel. Uh, I pointed out some of this during the course of the Torah reading, but it's worthwhile just to review it very briefly here. The Parsha begins with a census. The purpose of the, of the census is to determine what are the needs of each of the tribes according to their demographic makeups, how many people do they have. And so the land is apportioned to the tribes based on two factors, one being demographics and the other being lots. Uh, they seem to be in stress with each other or in conflict with each other because on the one hand, you have God through the lots determining which tribe gets what piece of land. And then on the other hand, you have to take into consideration the demographic needs of each of the tribes. We'll come back to that either later today or at another time. The second element of the Parsha that deals with the land of Israel, that deals with Eretz Israel, is the story of the daughters of Salafchad. They had no sons, and they were concerned that with the death of their father, their ancestral rights to the land would pass on to somebody else. And so they partitioned Moses in order to receive it as women, which was very radical at that time. Moses, of course, doesn't know the answer. So he goes to God and God tells him, yes, they're right. Give them the land. Another story about land. We have the succession of Moshe to Joshua, of Moses to the next leader. And that succession is all about Moshe understanding that he can't go into the land and concerned about what are the characteristics and the traits and the leadership qualities of the person who should take them into the land. So the succession from Moses to Joshua, from Moshe to Yeshua is also about the land. And then finally, the reading of the calendar and of the sacrifices is another way in which the Torah is connected to agriculture. It's connected to the Bikarim, to the first fruits. It's connected to the flocks that graze and grow and are dependent upon the land. The Torah, the entire story of the Torah, is ultimately about Eretz Yisrael, about the land of Israel. Rashi's first comment if we remember on Bereshit, on the very beginning of the world, is why does the Torah begin with Bereshit bara Elohim? Why does the Torah begin with God created the land of Israel? Only to tell us that God creates the land of Israel, therefore God can also, or God creates the entire world, so God can also determine who's going to be the tenant on which plot of land at which point of time. Rashi is making a claim already for understanding theologically how B'nai Israel survive in, in Galut, in the diaspora, in exile, with a desire that when God is ready, we'll be able to return to the land of Israel. 
So Torah from beginning to end is all about the creation of the land, Abraham and his descendants in the land, Abraham and his descendants in another land in Egypt, Exodus from Egypt, and the entire journey back to the land of Israel. That's what Torah is about. The prophets are all about losing the land of Israel. What is it that B'nai Yisrael did, that the northern tribes in particular did, in order to lose the land of Israel? And for them, it was very simple. It was idolatry. It was sin. You turn to idolatry, you turn away from God, you sin before God, the punishment for that sin is exile. Rabbinic Judaism, the Mishnah, the Talmud, all the Shalot and Shuvot that existed up until our own time, Rabbinic Judaism is all about how do we function as Jewish people connected to a tradition that ties us to the land of Israel, but with a reality for the last 2,000 years in which we have been disconnected from that land. What does it mean to have Torah in the diaspora? The rabbis brilliantly transitioned Judaism from Beit HaMikdash, from a centralized shrine in the center of Israel in Jerusalem, to Beit HaMidrash, to the academy that could take place in anywhere, any place uh, around the world. And today, today, for those of us that really struggle and study with the nature of the Jewish people, especially the growing gap between those who live in the diaspora and those who live in Eretz Israel, in the land, and Midinat Israel. Today, the, the primary challenge of the Jewish people is, what does it mean to have a land again? What does it mean to have sovereignty? What are the challenges of power, of Jewish power, in terms of defense and economics and foreign relations and taking care of the poor? and being a state for your citizens as well as a homeland for Jews around the world. For most of Jewish tradition, our tradition in some way, shape, or form is about relating to the land of Israel. And the reason, at least historically and theologically, when we've been outside the land of Israel is because of the sin of idolatry. I was thinking about this this week as I was paying attention to the news about the heat waves taking place across Europe uh, and across Canada um, and other places, but especially Europe at this particular moment, where it seems to me that the threat to the Jewish people and really to all people as to whether or not we can remain on the land is not the sin of idolatry but rather the sin of ignoring, as, presidential, as President Biden said just this week, and others have said in weeks and years even before him, but ignoring the sin of the existential threat of climate change on us as human beings as we relate to every land, especially to this planet Earth. We've known for years that climate change poses an existential threat. The science is overwhelming in its understanding 
of the relationship between how we human beings live our lives on this earth and the consequences of waste and pollution on our environment. In the last year in particular, we've seen some very extreme reminders of this. You might recall on Rosh Hashanah, I reminded us of what happened in Lytton, British Columbia. An entire town that spontaneously combusted from heat. 619 people died from that heat dome just a year ago. And more recently, the floods that took place on the border between BC and the United States. And the knowledge that we've had for years that because of environmental decay, because of the, our lack of paying attention to the existential threat of what we're doing to the climate, those floods, we could have spent millions of dollars 10 years ago, and instead it's costing us over a billion dollars to repair it and to rebuild that infrastructure in our country. And this is true around the world. More recently, in just the last several weeks, there have been a thousand deaths in Portugal alone. A thousand deaths in Portugal alone because of the heat wave going across Britain, France, Germany, Spain, Greece, and other parts of Central Europe. Uh, I, I noted this week an article in Haaretz in which Israeli climatologists warned that like Canada, um, Israel is heating up at two times the global rate. And there's an expectation in Israel that by the year 2030, eight years from now, Israel will see up to perhaps 118 days of 40 or 50 degree weather in the summer. Air conditioners and water desalination in Israel will certainly help to mitigate the impact of that heat wave, but not for Israel's neighbors. There's many in the national security circles for Israel that believe the next major war between Israel and her neighbors, um, yeah, it may be with Iran and, nuclear, and its nuclear capacities, but with others, it will be about the stress that the environment puts on desperate populations for limited resources, especially water. In Canada, though our environment is heating up at double that of the global population, the impact in Canada is different than that in Israel because we're farther north. We have ice and water. And so the impact in Canada is going to be the warming of winters, which I know for some people might not be so bad. But for our environment and for the long-term sustainability on this planet, it poses a real problem. And we're seeing it already in the Arctic with the melting of the ice caps at a much faster rate than we've ever seen before. In Israel, it's going to be the summers because it's dry. In Canada, it'll be the winters because the ice will melt and water will evaporate, will turn to steam.
were at risk of not being able to be in the land on earth because of the sin of not taking care of this planet. As with all sin, nashuva. As Jews, we believe that that's not the end of the story, that we're not destined to behave in these ways. We have the capacity to grow, to change, to do better. We call that tshuva. We can return. In commenting on the correlation of human behavior to climate change and the heat waves that took place in Europe, UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres convened a moment for nature on Tuesday. A moment for nature. And he said, our ways of life, based on pr producing, consuming, discarding, and polluting, have brought us to this dire state of affairs. But since human activities are at the root of this planetary emergency, he said, that means we also hold the key to its solution. COVID-19 in the last two and a half years, uh, ironically, showed drastically how true that was. And it gave scientists an opportunity to compare what would happen to our environment if we suddenly radically decreased air pollution and greenhouse gases. Uh, maybe you remember seeing some of the pictures, the satellite pictures of the year before COVID and what our air looked like even just a year later into it, a year, 18 months. Scientists now have an unprecedented view of the results that it would have taken regulations years to achieve. And it only goes to show that if we need to, we have the capacity to make a difference and to change. Our Torah, our Torah gives us all sorts of responses and guidance. Not only as Eitz Tova, as wise advice on how to address these challenges, but we, as Jews, we speak of mitzvah. These are commandments. These are expectations that we understand that God gives us in terms of how we're supposed to relate to our planet. The most prominent of them, and this year, we're in that year, is the Shemitah cycle. The notion that every seven years, we have to let the, lie, have to let the land lie fallow, have to give it an opportunity to regenerate the nutrients that it needs in order to produce for us and in order to preserve its capacity to produce for the future. Farmers know this. That's, what, that's why they rotate their crops. So that every seven year, one segment, uh, once every seven years, one section of their crops remains fallow. And that's also why they every so often change the type of crop that they grow in the land because different crops require different kinds of nutrients. And so in order to ensure good farming, we have to do the practice of Shemitah in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not exactly as the Torah describes it, but certainly in terms of the concept of relating to our environment.
And in this week's Torah reading, we find advice for us in this regard as well. In Bamidbar, Pinchas Numbers 27, verse 15, we read, Vayomer Moshe Lemor, God says, or Moshe says to God uh, the following, let Adonai, the source of breath of all flesh, who shall um, appoint someone over the community who will go out before them and come in before them and shall take them out and bring them in so that the Lord's community may not be like sheep that have no shepherd. Kason asher ein lahem so that we won't be like sheep who won't have a shepherd. Moses is asking God for this characteristic and quality for the person who will succeed him as the leader of Israel, the person who's going to take them into the land of Israel. The metaphor of sheep is telling. What is it that sheep do and need in order to survive? They're grazing animals. They're reliant on the land. They're sustained by the land and its ability to grow and their vicinity to it. In the wilderness, B'nai Yisrael was reliant on God. In the wilderness, when the people needed to eat, God caused manna to fall down from the heavens. But when B'nai Yisrael enters the land of Israel, that relationship of the core reliance for food is going to shift from God to the land. And so Moses is saying to God, I understand this key trait of leadership. Whoever is going to take the people into the land has to be one who understands the fundamental relationship between human beings between the people and the land itself in order to take care of the land, to allow it to nurture and to grow food for the people to survive. Now that B'nai Yisrael is in the land, writes Talia Weisberg, who is an intern for Chazon, the largest environmental Jewish group in North America, and a rabbinical student at Yeshivat Maharat, which is the first and only that I know of, seminary, rabbinical seminary for women in the Orthodox world. She writes, now that they're in the land, they must rely on what the land produces, not God. They need a leader who will help them to know that. Finally, I just want to point out that in Psalm 147, which is one of the Psalms that we recite every morning as part of Birkot HaShachar and Psuki de Zimra, part of the passages of praise that we use as a warm-up, as a warm-up to get us ready for the core of our davening for Shema and its blessings. Psalm 147 stresses God's hand in nature. God's hand in nature, in the production of food, and in the rain that allows the crops to grow. In fact, if you read through the Psalms of Psuche de Zimra, What's fascinating about them is most of them relay an understanding of God's hand in nature. It's as if our tradition wants to teach us every single day to be mindful 
of our relationship to the earth. That if we continue to commit the sin of ignoring the climate emergency before us, not only do we risk being exiled again from Eretz Yisrael, but we risk creating an earth that is inhabitable for human life. But it's not too late. It's never too late. If we turn our attention to what we know and what science knows can mitigate the crisis in front of us, Nashuva, we can return to a more pristine and pure state of relationship with God and with the world. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>